You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hey there, music fans. This is Modern Musicology. And guess what? All of us are together this week. I'm so excited to say hello to Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody. Rob Levy. Hey. And Anthony Williams. Sup. And I don't think I mentioned it, but my name is Alan. It's by far the least important of the four names. So Oh, come uh, now. <laughs> You're the and, captain, remember? Oh, that's right. That's, oh, that's El Capitan. That's Capitan. terrifying. <laughs> Cappy. I'm, I'm, I'm destined to run this ship into an iceberg or something. <laughs> Great. But I mean, it's been almost two years and it hasn't happened yet, <laughs> I guess. All right. So with this week, we are going to be talking about great producers. And we've got a lot of names that we want to cover as far as producers who have made a huge impact on modern music, and we're really excited to get into it. But first, we have a little bit of listener feedback. And Stephanie, why don't you tell us what we got? That is correct. From our Great Final Albums episode from last week, we got a comment from someone on our Instagram page, uh, Benign Music. And that person said, that's a great episode. Dear You by Jawbreaker is probably my favorite final album. So thank you so much for writing us. All right. So thank you for the feedback. And if anybody else wants to contact us, we would love to read your comments and questions out on our show. So just email us at modernmusicology1 at gmail, or just drop a comment on our Facebook or Insta or all right this week it is great producers there's a lot of great bands in the world who make great albums but sometimes it's that producer that makes that album better than it could be it makes the album even grander so we've got a lot of people that we want to talk about tonight so let's start it i mean who who can tell us for anybody who doesn't know, what is a producer? What does a producer do? Do they produce? Well, yes, they do. But what does that mean? Is it just twiddling knobs? Is it wrangling cats? Is it all of the above? The true answer is all of the above. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Babysitter. Right. It doesn't and it also, it depends on the band. It depends on how developed th songs are. It ha depends on how developed the band sound is. It depends on how much input the band wants and and or how much the producer wants to give also. Yeah. And sometimes you can have great fits and sometimes you don't. That's a really good point, Steph. And that immediately makes me think of one of the names that I was planning on bringing up tonight. And that is Bob Ezrin, who is a producer who has a definite penchant for the dramatic and the orchestrated and elevating rock to a much grander level and he's worked with people like Aerosmith and Pink Floyd like Pink Floyd he he co-produced the wall and he did all of the the later albums momentary lapse of reason and all those uh deep purple peter gabriel he's most associated with Alice Cooper he did a ton of albums for Alice but he also was very key in the development of Kiss, and he produced three of my favorite Kiss albums, and that is Destroyer in 1976, their first big breakout studio album, Music from the Elder in 81, and yes, I know that's a contentious one, but I love it, and Revenge in 1992. But going back to Destroyer, they'd done three studio albums, and then they went into doing a live album because they're three studio records didn't sell. I mean, they were expecting to get some traction from them and nothing really happened, but it was their live shows where they were really sort of busting out. So they released a live album and Eddie Kramer was hired to produce it. And when Ezra went into the studio with them, he literally sat them down 
with a chalkboard and drew out diagrams and taught them how to be a studio band. And you can see how much they grew from that. After that, when they learn how to be studio musicians and they learn how to approach the recording studio, everything really starts to change for them. And I was specifically going to ask you, Stephanie, because you've obviously been on some records, one Mm -hmm. or two of them. What have you found in your personal experience has made a really effective producer for you? Um, well, I'll, I'll just say that like really quickly when we were, when I was in my first band, the Aquanettas, we had, we were given, we were given a producer by our record label who was only, had only done live bands, never produced a record. And you could hear that on our record. I mean, it sounds like shit. So, you know, sound wise, it sounds not, you know, very good. So that was a pretty bad first experience, but I've, throughout my whole, you know, career, I guess, career, but whatever, you know what I mean? Um, I found that it's really helpful to have somebody that does give you input and that does know how to get a great sound. That's so important to get it, you know, sound and a nice sound for everything. And, uh, that's so important as a foundation because then you can work with things in the mix or whatever later on. It's just so important to get a great sound up front. I think, and um, I also like somebody who who works with my ideas and doesn't just tell me what to do, you know. And right. most of the time, my producer is my husband Bob, so <laughs> we work pretty well together. Although it sometimes gets pretty contentious when I'm trying to tell him what my song ideas are because I don't play any instruments. So. I'm I'm curious about this because I'm really interested in what you just said, and I'm thinking of the song that. Uh, Aquanetta's recorded for a soundtrack. It was called Mindful of Worries. Was that yeah. a different producer? Yes. It had to be because it, I mean, the sound difference between that song and your first album is day and night. I know. That was actually, we. that's from a EP that we put out called Roadhouse and our friend Bruce Calder produced that. And that was mm. also Andy from Primal Scream was producing the single from that Whoa. So um, yeah, it. not Andy Weatherall and Andrew Innes from the band Primal Scream. But um, so, yeah, that was a whole different story. And we, that yeah. was when we also realized, holy shit, how much of a difference it makes, you know. Right. I mean, it sounds so different. Than, yeah. And, you know, that first album has a, an interesting sound to it because it sounds trashy. It sounds punky. Yeah. And it's it got an trashy. energy to it that, you know, maybe a yeah. little polish would have diminished. Yeah. I mean, you, you know what? It can't change anything, but so it is what it is. But like, that's, that's, it's, it's got its upsides for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go with the one everyone knows I'm going to bring up because, you know, it's me. And I think he is one of the most well-respected producers of today. He's very well known for remixes and remastering in... 5.1 and in Atmos. In fact, he's become the go-to guy for Atmos and that's Stephen Wilson. Yep. Who, I mean, you, you look at the body of work he has done over the last few years and it's everything from XTC to Opeth to Roxy Music to Suede to Marillion. He's done some Black Sabbath work. He's done a Kiss album. I mean, he really has become the guy for atmos and his work is just so good his concept of soundscapes and really how that should flow and and looking at it from an experience is just absolutely amazing uh and i think that is why so many different musicians of different genres are seeking him out both for remastering as well as for new work yeah, my friend has a mastering studio, and he just start, he just uh, got the Atmos system. I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. It's an investment. <laughs> I'm sure it is. <laughs> yeah. It's the future. I mean, yeah, you know, having both Apple Music as well as a pair of AirPod Pros, Atmos just gives that depth. Like, if you're an audiophile, it probably sounds better on even better headphones than than AirPods, but even on on AirPods, it it really gives a very warm, thorough, big sound to it. It's it's so cool. And with someone as talented as Mr. Wilson, I'm not surprised that yeah. he's been charged. I mean, he he's even done Chic, wow, which 
you know, when you're when you're remixing Nile Rogers, who himself is one of the great producers right. who I know is gonna get touched on later. Yeah. That says something about your ability. Yeah. Absolutely. So and you know, for me with Wilson, it's not just he he's one of those unique characters who's an absurdly talented musician, but has also made that step into becoming one of the most sought after producers of today. Yeah. Just amazing all round. Yeah. Yeah, those Ultravox remasters, especially because they needed a lot of work and they sound completely different. So speaking of big sound and 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 sort of developing, you know, your own kind of sound, which I feel like we should turn this podcast name into the Daniel and Wa show, but <laughs> I do want to bring up my favorite <laughs> Daniel and Wa because he's really, really notable for for his production, uh, sort of bringing that like big live drum sound like really ambient kind of reverby atmosphere sound guitar wise to so many albums i mean he was basically rolling stone said he was you know one of the most important record producers to emerge in the 80s and i think i agree with that i mean he he also yes he does all that and but he also brings other so many different and wonderful sounds to so many other albums that he's you know that, that he's produced over the years. But really, I started knowing about him because of um, U2's Unforgettable Fire. Yeah. Um, a lot, and, you know, then he, of course, did, along with Brian Eno, he did The Joshua Tree. I mean, these are all some of my favorite albums, not just U2 albums, but albums of all time. I mean, he he co-produced Achtung, Achtung Baby, <laughs> How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb, and also No Line on the Horizon. So he's done tons of work with U2, but I mean, gosh, Peter Gabriel's so yes, <laughs> you know that was also a, the he, at that time that was when he was sort of um, getting that whole like there were so many albums that that had that amazing big sound. It was Robbie Robertson, you know, with like somewhere down the crazy river. Um, oh, that was rec- a great record. Yeah, even 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 like Emmy Lou Harris's Wrecking Ball. That was a little later. That was ninety five, but that had that amp beautiful ambient, but just big, full sound. I mean, he's done so many. This guy has produced everyone you could just name, like Dylan, you know, uh, Neil Young, everyone from that to like Sinead O'Connor, Luscious Jackson, Ron Sexton's debut. It's just, it's outrageous, you know, like how many amazing albums he's produced. So he's super important. I think there are Gabriel fans. First of all, so gets kind of panned for being poppy you know, mm-hmm. for being the, the success that it was. But I think also it gets a little pan sometimes for being, having such a clean production sound, yeah. which the previous Gabriel albums didn't really have. But I think that it is one of the most remarkable sounding albums I've ever heard. I mean, it yeah. is, it is pristine. I feel like I'm in the room we yeah. know, with the drummer, with the guitarist, any, you know, I just feel like you're right there. I uh, I look forward to the inevitable Stephen Wilson Atmos mix of so. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, I, w- what I think is interesting is, firstly, anyone who doesn't like so because it's too poppy is candidly a snob and yeah. actually should get out of their own ass. <laughs> um, secondly, I find it fascinating that we're two producers in, and on both of them, we have already mentioned other producers that I know we're going to be talking about. Mm. So we. We already yeah. mentioned Niall yeah. Rogers when I was talking about Wilson. And in mm-hmm. talking about Daniel Lanois, Stephanie, you also mentioned yeah. um, Eno. Yeah. yeah. So I think this world of really top producers is so interconnected and incestuous to some extent. They all work together because that cream really does rise to the top. Mm-hmm. And also Steve Lillywhite, who I'm going to mention later. But yes, yeah, same yeah. thing. Yeah, definitely. And you know, right. Daniel Lanois, wow, what, what a what a producer. And candidly, I look forward to our spin-off shows, Stephanie, St- Stephanie Seymour's Daniel Lanois fangirl <laughs> I hour. I might. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put it past me. Modern Musicality presents. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'll jump in. There's a guy who was really kind of prolific in the 80s. And I, I was kind of surprised some of the stuff he's done in the 2000s, too. But there's a guy named Stephen Haig, 
who for a while in the mid-80s, anytime you turned around, he produced something. Malcolm McLaren, uh, Madam Butterfly, mm. uh, the first two albums from the Pet Shop Boys, Please, and actually OMD Crush, uh, The Innocence by Erasure, Up by Peter Gabriel, uh, the Some Kind of Wonderful soundtrack. Frighteningly enough, the Mel- Melanie C solo record. <laughs> um, also, bands like Dubstar and James and some of these like bands that have been around, Client. The uh, Lifelines album from AHA, which is like, I think, a really great underrated AHA record. And also the first Morton Hartchin solo album. He also did remixes. So like he he produced and remixed True Faith by New Order, which was huge. And he did the remix for it. And he's probably still making money off of that just that one thing today. Also, I think worked a little bit with a couple other folks as well that people know of like Ace of Bass, The Pretenders, Tom Jones, and which is sort of like a, a more contemporary kind of band. But that that's kind of gives you the little bit of the breadth of where he's going. And I think he's one of those guys that made sort of synth pop sound. I hate to use this word clean again, but clean again. He took kind of like the weirdness out of synth pop and sort of turned it into something that was packaged and produced and and work but he also let the artist kind of breathe a little i'm i'm gonna say i think the first producer that i ever became aware of because the first real album that i ever owned was love gun by kiss so the first time i ever read a liner note and saw that there was a producer on an album it was eddie kramer so they released a live album and eddie kramer was hired to produce it and they were so taken with him that they hired him to do rock and roll over love gun alive Two, ace fraley's first solo album he did a lot of other stuff so he's so known for kiss but he produced um cry of love for hendrix triumph's seventh album thunder seven which is by far my favorite i mean i love triumph that's not a band i talk about very much on this show but i love triumph and thunder seven is a phenomenal record among the living a classic metal album by anthrax he did mm-hmm. a bunch of other stuff. He did April Wine and Angel and Brian May and Twisted Sister and all these things. So, but man, what a guy. What a, you know, in the hard rock world, he is one of the key names. I met him years ago at Dragon Con. He had a, a new band from like Sweden, I think it was. And I think they were called Hang Face. And they came and played at Dragon Con and that was going to be their big launch into America. And Eddie Kramer was there and he's also an artist and they had a lot of his stuff on view in the art show. And I was so excited. I was going to get to meet Eddie Kramer and the band was really good, but they never went anywhere. So, But it was interesting. I, I enjoyed meeting him. He was really cool. That's cool. You know, something you said, though, when you first noticed on the liner note, that is what I thought about today. Like, who's the first producer I ever really knew, you know, and yeah. looked other than musician credits. And it was Richard Goddard from who produced the first Go-Go's record, um, who produced Beauty and the Beat. Yep. And I was just, you know, who, who actually started as like a Brill Building writer in the 60s and had like huge hits, like My Boyfriend's Back, Hang On Sloopy, and I Want Candy. I mean, he was a writer first, but then oh, he- Oh, wow. Yeah, and he really also cool. helped form Sire with, with Seymour Stein. So he he was pretty crucial in the rise of new wave music. And um, but but like I said, I mean, I basically knew him because he produced the Go-Go's first record, which went to number one in 82. So, you know, the just FYI, there's a really quick, funny story about that. Um, I was such a huge, like, admirer of his. And then IRS Records for our, for the Aquanetta's second record, for our second record, that never actually happened. Um, they brought him into our rehearsal one day to see if we would click with him to to um, you know work together. That's so. Cool. And it was like the worst experience ever. <laughs> we it was like almost as soon as we he walked in the door, we were like all butting heads. Like he wanted us to try this and that. And we were like, what the? Fuck? I don't know. It just didn't work. But I'm sure he's a <laughs> lovely man. <laughs> I wonder what the Go-Go's experience was with him. I think they had a good experience with him. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. All right. The next one I wanted to talk about, and again, I'm staying fairly true to form and going with someone who is very much in the metal genre, and that is Andy Sneap, Mm. who in recent times has become known really for being Judas Priest's touring guitarist. But for that... He started his career um, in as a musician uh, before going into production. So like many others, he started in a band called Sabbat. But 
after that kind of came to an end, uh, he really transitioned into production and did a Machine Head album, which did okay. That was kind of in the period where they were kind of flailing dismally. Uh, but where he really started to get a name for himself was in 2000. Blaze Bailey had just left Iron Maiden and Andy Sneap was selected as the producer for the first Blaze album. And that seemed to get him some attention. The following year, he did an Arch Enemy album. Then he did Killswitch Engage's debut. And from then on, he's just gone up and up and up. I mean, you know, Machine Head uh, took him on again. Bullet for My Valentine, who became one of the metalcore bands. Uh, he did an Annihilator album. Megadeth started using him. Cradle of Filth. I mean, just, you know, some of the bigger metal bands who aren't quite major label i think he did uh he did a saxon album he's done exodus he was the engineer on the ronnie james dio tribute album just he's really really taken off wow and i'm gonna use that word rob likes to use his sound is very clean Mm -hmm. you listen to any metal album he's done and you can kind of hear the crunch of those distorted guitars you can hear what's being hit on the drums everything just sounds Separated. clean and yeah. audible it's he's a very talented uh producer and actually quite a good guitarist too there's another metal producer that i know that you are going to get to at some point that fits yes. that same bill oh absolutely i'm saving the best for last there yeah. there you go <laughs> But everything you say reminds me of that other name that we'll get to. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, should we just talk about yeah, the yeah, other sure, name? I'm just going to oh. take two. The other one's Martin Birch. Yeah, baby. Uh, which, you know, I, I kind of like to think of Andy Sneap almost as a successor, because if you think about Martin Birch, the latter part of his career was really in producing Iron Maiden. He yes. did everything from Killers through to Fear of the Dark. Now, he never did the Blaze Bailey albums, but I think you know, given that Blaze did two albums with Maiden and then went solo, you kind of get that idea of continuity in production from someone who I think was very clearly influenced by Martin Birch's work. And beyond that, I mean, Martin Birch worked on those early Fleetwood Mac albums way before Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. Yeah. He did basically everything from Deep Purple's biggest period right through to when they self-destructed in 1976 he touched all of richie blackmore's rainbow albums uh with ronnie james dio he then kept going with coverdale with white snake he did probably the two best black sabbath albums which are heaven and hell and the mob rules and i'm gonna say anyone who disagrees fight me (laughs) (laughs) getting aggressive on this and he did a couple of blue oyster cult albums so you know you look at his span of work and as alan said the the style and the sound is very similar to the qualities of andy sneep's work and he's martin birch just did some of the metal albums and he sadly passed away in 2020 uh at 71 years old Mm. yeah um we talked about martin birch once before um early on in uh i think the first ever metal show that we ever did And it was just Anthony and I talking about it. And we sort of extracted that part of the conversation and put it out by itself. And it's up on YouTube. So go look for it. I mean, we we might say exactly the same thing then that we do now, but he is he is remarkable. And uh, I feel like he is that same kind of thing where every instrument, every single thing that happens on in the studio, you hear on the record and everything is balanced. Everything is, um, is, has its own identity. And I, man, I think his, his records are just impeccable. And as you say, the two best black Sabbath albums, I mean, if that was the only thing that he had done, that is a huge (sighs) achievement by itself. But fire of unknown origin by bluer circle is a, just an insane album. All that iron maiden stuff is great i mean it's just a he's just a super talented guy i keep thinking about all these producers who and some i'm going to talk about who did like hundreds and hundreds of records like even if they did one or two of those there that would be amazing and they've done so many some of some of them you know yeah but uh, hmm. (laughs) Uh (laughs) uh-oh 
Hmm. I'm. I know the this is the greatest album, uh, greatest producers, but that does make me want to touch on someone who I think is horrendously overrated. Can I? Of course, can you I can. do that for Please. a second? <laughs> this is where we talk about Ruben. Oh, no. interesting. I disagree. Oh my. I I mean, you look at what he's done, and he's done some great albums. But how much of that did he actually do? From what I've heard about how he works, he comes along says a couple of things and mostly lets his people do the rest. But that's mm. not necessarily not producing either. Like I was mentioning, I mean, I know what you're saying, but, and I don't think he was so hands-off with maybe the Beastie Boys in the beginning, you know, stuff like that. I can't imagine him being, yeah. or with John, even Johnny Cash, how could he, I don't, I don't know. But you're right. I mean, not. I'm not saying maybe that didn't happen for every record. And candidly, I had a conversation at one point with someone who worked with him. Mm -hmm. And I get the impression that if you are one of the money makers, you get quite a lot of his attention. Oh, I see. If you're a smaller band, he's going to pawn you off to his people and just put his name on it. Hmm. That's the impression I get. Um, Obviously, I can't attest that that's actually the case i'm trying to protect myself from potential rick <laughs> rubin lawsuit. legal action here um but you know i i get the impression that he very heavily uh hmm. relies on his hmm. underlings to do a lot of the actual work he's, whereas he's... i think a lot of a lot of these really great guys are the ones who are involved in a part of that creative process with the artist right and you know one of the names that i think of is ken calais who produced he was an engineer with Fleetwood Mac before but then he got bumped up to producer for I mean rumors come on he also did Tusk he did their 1980 live album he did Mirage and I've read both of the books that he's released so far the first one about the making of rumors and the second one about Tusk and it's so interesting to see his involvement like you know, as far as like helping with arrangements and helping with suggestions about, I mean, he was incredibly hands-on to the point where in Tusk, he was technically the producer, but Lindsay really wanted to be the producer. He really wanted it to be a Lindsay Buckingham (laughs) solo album with some songs thrown in from the two girls in the band. And he was not interested at all in participating in band recordings. He just wanted to stay in his own house, in his kitchen and record his like really punky kind of new songs that he wanted to write. And it's interesting read to go back and look at how, Ken had to juggle all that stuff, Mm -hmm. how he was managing Christine and Stevie's songs and trying to get Lindsay to participate in them. And Lindsay's recording his songs. And he's like, you know what? I just don't hear the girls on these songs, you know? And, and it was, it's a really interesting read to, to kind of look back at that situation. Man, he was a piece of work. Wasn't he? Lindsay, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And still is apparently. <laughs> of course, he's kind of out of the picture now, you know. So I guess I'll jump in with Nigel Godrich, who's gotten a lot of comparisons to to Martin. It's kind of interesting because he's got a band he works with primarily, which is Radiohead. I think he's produced everything since the bands, um, and then the Smile. But he's also worked with Paul McCartney, Arcade Fire, Air. Mm-hmm. Uh, he who did produce Plagiarism by Sparks. So there's our Sparks hey. for tonight. So he works sparks into the whole thing. Oh, I, I know we got another sparks mention coming up later. Oh, oh good. Yeah. I wasn't sure. Yeah. I have one. Um, also, he did Susie the Banshee's Superstition, which is oh. one of those records that has sort of the farther away from it being out has gotten a little bit more love to it. And he's kind of one of these artists, uh, one of these producers that's known for letting the artist go in the studio and just sort of like tinker around. And he just kind of says, okay, I think this is it. But then he's also, and this is probably his greatest strength with Radiohead knows when to tell them to stop mm-hmm. yeah because they very much like air are bands that if you leave them alone they will overthink every record they make that's important too right but yeah one of the reasons why okay computer sounds as good as it does is that he was able to wrangle them into like okay you're done mm-hmm. which is also why there's fifty thousand b-sides for that record too because <laughs> you let them like make everything they wanted to make and then like okay stop but the thing he also does really well is tracking in terms of how 
he works with the artist who put the albums in a track order, which I think is really important. He sort of guides it. Sequencing, yeah. Sort of like figuring out where it all goes. We, the last record from Arcade Fire, would not be as interesting as it is if if the track order was not the way it was. Totally. I agree. So I think that's the one of the interesting things about him. And then, you know, he's one of the few producers, too, that McCartney called and said, I want you to produce my album. Just tell me what to do, hmm. uh, which is fascinating. And then apparently, like, McCartney just literally loved the whole process of of making hmm. records with him because he still had the freedom to be an artist, but he could, like, leave the studio and go do other things <laughs> and let <laughs> someone else do the mixing and the, and the, and the sound design and stuff. Yeah. So I think he's 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 interesting. I'm not sure his long-term prolificness is going to be here, but I know he's somebody that pops up in a lot of different records from a lots of different people, especially now. Being the sort of house producer for Tom York and Radiohead is going to co- probably keep you going for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> probably. I'm going to go with somebody who's got credits on over 500 records since he started in 77, which is Steve Lillywhite. Rob, you were talking about Ultravox before. He he produced a demo for Ultravox, which got them signed. And that is sort of how he got to, you know, got going. And he joined Island as a staff producer. And um, his first big success was with Susie's, Susie's, Susie and the Banshee's Hong Kong Garden. Mm. I don't know if, it, well, the debut single, Hong Kong Garden, I mean. And then actually he was hired to produce her next album, The Scream, and that went silver in the UK. So that really bumped up his profile, as did working with Peter Gabriel for the for his third record, the mm. self-titled record. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of when he started, I guess it, he was really pioneering that, that gated reverb drum sound. Like if you think about Phil Collins in the 80s, that boom kind of. Yeah. That's that's a big kind of sound for him. Again, I'm picking people who I know from certain records. I know him because he produced Boy, October, and War from U2. And also from Island, he, he produced the Pogues, um, If I Should Fall From Grace With God, which was an album I promoted. And his wife was Kirsty McCall. And she sung their, you know, Fairy Tale of New York, which was like their biggest hit. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, he has done so many. If you just look at his credits, it's crazy. I mean, everything from, like I said, U2 to like Simple Minds, Sparkle in the Rain, which is my favorite mm-hmm. Simple yeah. Minds record. The Stones, Dirty Work, Crowded mm-hmm. House, some songs from that, that album, Time on Earth. He's done some songs, other U2 work after those three albums. Like he's done some songs on the Joshua Tree and Achtung Baby and... So anyway, I think it's just go go Google him and just look at his credits because it's insane. All right, I'll jump in with um, John Lecky. So John Lecky started off as a tape operator, eventually an engineer. And what's interesting is he is one of the few producers that has worked separately with McCartney, Lennon, and George Harrison. And then also with Pink Floyd Ed and Sid Barrett. So he took all of that tape op sound engineering stuff with him and became a producer. He produced two records for XTC, which is interesting. He did Go and then White Music by XTC, and then he jumped and did Red by Sammy Hagar, and then bounced back to Life in a Day <laughs> by Simple Minds, which is kind of weird. But he's also produced Purr by Jane Weedland. And oh. Um, oh my God, I love that album. He's so most much. widely known too for you know producing you know um, the Stone Roses. He did all the Stone Roses records and. He should get an award just for putting up with the Stone Roses, um, because as much of you may think that Oasis are, are pains in the ass, they are nothing compared to the Stone Roses. Um, wow. Yeah, he also preached this band that uh, Stephanie likes called The Verve. Uh, I believe he did the yeah. second second Verve album, and then also um, you know a couple things that are interesting like Let's Active and Lilac Time. So he's kind of oh, wow. all over the place. Yeah, and but he's one of these producers that's sort of like. You see a pattern. This is the reason why I kind of brought him up because you see a pattern where someone starts off, oh, I'm a sound mixing tape operator. I'm an engineer. Like I'm in the studio all the time. This tells me you guys a studio rat who just wants to go in and play with sound. And then he slowly works his way up to being a producer and then kind of getting what he wants. But he's sort of known for being able to let bands just kind of go and not be not be as taskmaster minded as some other producers and i think you get some of that you get good things like the first stone roses album because he let them 
have a creative rope, but then you also get things like the second Stone Roses album where he really should have like just bring them all in and shot them. <laughs> so yeah, but but the stuff he's done is really amazing. And basically he was talking to Lennon when he was working with Lennon and said, this is how we did Sergeant Pepper. And he goes, show me. And Lennon's like, I don't know. So then he was obsessed with trying to figure out how they did Sergeant Pepper and just literally used that and some of the Pink Floyd records as building blocks for how to learn sound production. Mm-hmm. So if you have a great record, kids, your producer somewhere in the future will listen to that record and become a great producer. Rob, there, there's only one Stone Roses comment that I will semi fight you on. And on the second album, Love Spreads is a oh, that's track. a track. Yeah. And that should the rest been of the a... album. I'll agree. Yeah. That, <laughs> Love Spreads is fantastic. It was a great lead single. We had like great hopes for it. And then no. I think it was uh, Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream who <laughs> described it as the greatest comeback single ever. Which is a little hyperbolic, but (laughs) it is very good. It took them 10,000 years to make it. It better be something, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I just want to sort of bounce off what you just said about Studio Rat. um, Because someone who I just wanted to briefly mention is John Bryan, who was actually really just basically an accomplished session player, always in the studio. But he branched out into production when with Amy Mann on her first two albums, right? So. He uh, and and then later on Bachelor Number Two and talk about creating a sound. They really created sort of what was a like almost like an L.A. alt sound, and a lot of the uh, aesthetic that he created with her became sort of a general sound of some of the '90s acts. Like he worked with um, the Eels and Elliot Smith and like Fiona Apple, Rufus Wainwright, and that that sort of all carried over. And that was a very kind of defining sound for like the turn of, you know, acts from like the turn of the turn of the century kind of. He's great. He's just such a great musician and such a great producer. I love him. Well, while we're briefly touching on others, Rob, you mentioned, uh, you know, working with multiple Beatles on different projects. This is not someone I really want to go into huge amount of details in because he's mostly produced his own records, but... I, I feel like at this point, Jeff Lynn does yes. deserve a mention. I was oh, thinking gosh. the same thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, well, yeah. you know, he did Free as a Bird. He he did uh, a Ringo album. He obviously worked very closely with George. He did McCartney's Flaming Pie. So he, he made a good run with working with as many of them as he could. And he's a good producer. I I just wish he worked with more people. And the the, um, the traveling Wilburys, of course. The thing is, he he kind of made every album he produced sound like an ELO album. <laughs> yes, which is not necessarily a bad thing. ELO albums sound amazing. Yes, but I, I feel like he also has just a knack for a certain sound, and people hire him for that certain sound. But that happens exactly a lot. That's, you, you that's that exactly with, right. Yeah. Um, okay, I'll just move into this. You get that with Giorgio Moroder. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. you pretty much don't hire Giorgio Moroder to make, you know, a Slayer record. Yeah. Right? Um, oh, my God. I would love to hear that. I, I was that just thinking be, the same thing. Yes, please. That would be fantastic. <laughs> but, like, so, you know, everyone knows the knows the hits. They know that he works with Daft Punk and Madonna and some other folks. But he did work with Shooter Jennings, which I think mm. is extremely interesting. And, of course, Sparks. Yes. Another Sparks That's mentioned. Right. And, ding, ding. Um, you know, Lamal. Um, anyone that can work with Lamal and survive is, is, is pretty okay with me, but also sort of like th- this touches on that artist and, and, uh, producer thing too, because he got a lot of mileage out of Daft Punk when Daft Punk's sound was pretty much, okay, this is it, right? This is what we got you know, it's like, this is what they're going to sound like. <laughs> you just get the cover and you know what it's going to sound like. And you got a little something different out of them, sort of in the same way that Niall Rogers does with the band. But I think the, the thing that's interesting with him is that he, is one of those producers that almost single-handedly defined the sound of the 70s, the late 1970s and early 80s, from soundtracks to like, you know, other stuff. And he sort of kind of single-handedly invented the 12-inch single in the dance mix. Say what you want about I Feel Love, but man, that whole 12-minute version of I Feel Love is still friggin' fantastic. Well, and, and it goes earlier than that, too, because when they were recording Donna's, I think it was third album, the one that has Love to Love You Baby yes. on it, yeah. they intentionally recorded that song to be an entire album side. 
So they released it singly as, you know, first the, the radio single, but also on a disc by itself. So in a sense, I think really he did invent the 12 inch. Yeah. And also just another way all these are connected. Um, those Donna Summer records were a huge influ influence in the early mind of Stephen Wilson as a kid. He got hold of that and that kind of really drove him in the direction of sampling he would like get bits mm. of tape and cut them up and stick them together and see what he could come up with as like a really? 12 year old That's oh yeah wild. His, his autobiography is fascinating he was far more interested with sound than actually writing songs when he was a kid huh. and some of that came out of Maroda's stuff That's yeah. fascinating rob your point Maroda creating that sound of the the early 80s without Maroda, you lose that entire electropop movement yeah. in britain effectively yeah and, and again this is this is the uh pod this is the podcast everyone's afraid of i tell disco would not happen without Giorgio moroder which is a travesty if that does not happen yeah i mean there's a there's a number of key producers in disco but moroder is definitely the name with yeah and i think he's the, i think he's the one who's kind of survived who's outlived it i think like him and now rogers are kind of like the last guy standing almost you know? yeah and I was, I was just going to say, too, um, talking about reading biographies and talking about disco and the early days of disco, Nile Rodgers. Mm -hmm. And he goes so far beyond that initial disco wave. You know, he was a member of Chic and he worked with Sister Sledge and all those great bands. Um, and he has gone so far beyond all of that. He has done everything. And. That is a biography that I have not read. And I I was just thinking about it this afternoon, too, when I was putting some of my notes together for this show. I was like, how it's been on my list to read for a, <laughs> 10 years at least. And how have I not read the Nile Rogers bio? I mean, from all accounts, it is yeah. a spectacular read. Yeah, see, that book and the Quincy Jones book are both on my list of things to get to eventually. And I just haven't yet. Yeah. Oh, the Quincy Jones book, too. Holy cow. Yeah. Again, just to show how all of these guys are interconnected, uh, Niall Rogers remixed uh, Self from Stephen Wilson's album, The Future Bites. Wow. And nice. it's an incredible remix. Absolutely <laughs> worth tracking down. But wow. yeah, all, all these fuckers work together. Uh, <laughs> I want to I mention someone who sort of is very instrumental in creating, helping to create a scene, but actually hasn't done 7,000 records. And... So, but he's done a lot. Um, Andy Weatherall. So he <laughs> was, you know, mostly known for being a DJ in the whole like acid house movement in the UK in the late 80s. But he really gained massive fame when he was remixing out uh, tracks for, you know, like Happy Mondays, New Order, so many people. Future Sound of London. Primal Scream. Yeah, Sick yeah. Dragons. Primal Scream. Could, yeah. So, but that is what I want to talk about, his production on Scream Adelica, Primal Scream's third album, because that was the album. They really changed directions. They went into like really more kind of mix of like rock house and rave and his production on that with the, the samples and the loops and the, the whole, the whole scene really, you know, really emerged from that and a few other things. Right. I mean, I, I yeah. think he was really instrumental in that whole and scene. I, I think being the, the DJ at the Hacienda helped. Oh yeah. Because I think he knew his way around how to drop beats in and how to make that work. And I think a studio gave him sort of like a bigger platform. Yeah. Almost. And then just the songs that were so great on that album. I mean, every yeah. song on that album is amazing. And they all had amazing remixes. Like, just think about Don't Fight It, Feel It, or Come Together, Moving On Up, Higher Than The Sun. I mean, Loaded. There's so many great songs on that. There was so much to work with, too, to remix. And um, Hugo Nicholson was, a you know, remixed a lot of that stuff into dance tracks. And that, that thing sold over, like, 3 million copies. So anyway, I'm just saying that he was somebody who... Maybe he didn't have tons of production credits, but that was really a major influence. But mm. way more than you think he does, which is interesting. When you look him up, you're like, oh my God, he's on, he's done everything. Producing though, or, or like. Produ the... I mean, he's had a hand in much like some of these guys that start off as like a sound engineer or a tape guy, just he's been yes. responsible for so many records sounding the way they do, which yeah, I yes, think when we yes. talk about producers, yes, we talk about the albums they produce, but we also have to talk about 
much like Wilson, the outside legacy that they've left just in terms of their imprints on records that true like the remixes that he did for all those bands yes i agree yeah and he kind of revived the remix because marauder had it going in the 80s it was kind of kind of got really played out you know by 86 or 87 and then you start getting this um summer of love stuff and it's really taking off and then mm-hmm. he also capitalized on like hip-hop coming to britain american hip-hop and sort of incorporated that into some of the records that that he produced and remixed too, which I think is also important. All right. I have a, a incredibly important producer that we haven't talked about. And this is a producer who has worked with an incredibly diverse group of artists. And in a three-year period, so from 94 to 96, he worked with Tom Jones, Seal, Cher, Shane McGowan, Sinead O'Connor, Tina Turner, Brian Ferry, and Boyzone. And Sting was in there too. Boys own cool. No, just <laughs> and that's Trevor Horn. Oh, of, of course. course, of course, of course. Who, you know, I think he's best known in terms of being a musician for his time in the Buggles, yep. and then his time in Yes, mm-hmm. and his now two Yes albums. Who ever thought there would be a second Yes album with Trevor Horn? But that's beyond the point. <laughs> were phenomenal. Yeah. But I can't quite get over just the sheer breadth of artists that he has worked with and how sought out his production is. And I think he's someone who understands multiple genres of music. He's respected by artists from many different genres as well. Everything from pop to prog to classical. He's just, he's amazing. And he knows how to make a good record. And I'm sure Rob or Alan, the two of you probably can talk to him on a much more technical level, but just his output. Holy Mm -hmm. shit. Yeah. I mean, again, going back to sort of defining certain years, 1984 sounds the way it does because you have got the art of noise and you've got Frankie goes to Hollywood and you've got propaganda all happening. Right. And Dudley would not be the composer and producer that she is without him. And lots of the other people that he's worked with sort of have all gone on to do other things. You know, he's he's done a lot of interesting projects, too, that he's picked. You know, everything from, you know, he produced a Pet Shop Boys album. He did the propaganda records he did were, were pretty interesting. And um, I can't remember if he worked with ABC or not. I don't remember. And he started a label, that ZTT. ZTT, that, yeah. That, that was too. like part of Island. Yeah. Yeah. He did work with ABC, it, Rob. Yeah. Yeah. Lexicon of Love. Which is which is huge. That's like it is. Oh, that's such a good record. And I remember the ZTT because I used to drive someone nuts getting all the island ZTT stuff. (laughs) Steph, do you remember when he came by when when you were working in Ireland and he came by the office? Do you remember that? No, honestly. I talked to you one day and you said we were talking about something and you said, "Oh, Trevor Horn's coming by the office this week," and that's the last I heard of it. So I don't know if he came by the office or not. If you could go back to 1988 and find out for me, that would be. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting, too, because with Trevor Horn, you sort of find out that a lot of these guys that are sort of cut their teeth making prog are cutting their teeth making electronic records or sort of new wave records. And people who love new wave records stuff kind of forget that, which is kind of a no-no. But yeah, he's really fascinating all the stuff he's done. It's pretty incredible. Well, I'm going to specifically talk about the art of noise. Because that was enormously important and influential and was so cutting edge at the time. And in 84, you were talking about 1984 being the sound of Trevor Horn. That was when Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise came out. And that Mm -hmm. was a huge record. And it was so groundbreaking in, in the sense of bringing a certain movement, a certain sound to the general public. Yep. It made it accessible. And I think it was so, so brilliant. And the video was so. Um, oh my god, I love that video. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I'm thinking that it's so funny that we there's so many, so many huge producers that we could talk about, but we we just don't have yeah. the time. But just think about we don't have talked about George Martin. We haven't yeah. talked about Phil Spector, Jimmy Iovine. I was going to mention who's done seven million albums, actually over two hundred and fifty to be. <laughs> Um, so not quite 7 million, but close. Yeah, including my fa- one of my favorites of all time, which is Stevie Nicks' Belladonna. Yeah. I'm, yes. I mean, just te- so, so the guy has done everything. Plus, he started Interscope Records. But so there's just so many people that how would we ever get to the end? I, I wanted to pick people that maybe weren't 
so obvious like Phil Spector or, Mm -hmm. or, but it's, you gotta mention them too, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, what can we say in yeah. three and a half minutes about George Martin? True. That, you know, everybody on the planet doesn't already know. That's right. You know, I mean, he is the most probably well-known producer and every, every aspect. I mean, how many times he wiped his butt has probably been written about somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, what more is there to say? But not to diminish his, I mean, he changed yeah. the landscape of, of rock and roll, of recording. I mean, and so did Phil Spector. Yeah. And, and there's one thing, you know, whenever we're talking about producers, you know, I think, I think the conversation inevitably ends up being a big sausage fest. And I really want to, kind of remember that there were some women who had, and there's a lot of women coming up on the scene now that are strong producers, but there's a lot of people that I think get forgotten or get left out of these conversations. So I just want to like very quickly, I just want to say, and there's three Sylvia's on this list, which I thought was fascinating. Susan Rogers, who was an engineer for Prince, kind of an in-house Paisley Park engineer, went on to have a long career as a producer. She rec- uh, she produced David Byrne's first solo album. She produced um, Bare Naked Ladies, that fucking one week song. Oh, my God, I hated that song. But that's <laughs> oh. one of her biggest hits that she produced. Yeah. Sylvia Robinson who was the founder of Sugar Hill Records and was the producer of Rapper's Delight and Grandmaster Flash's The Message. There's Ethel Gabriel. She spent 40 years at RCA. She produced 2,500 records. She worked with Elvis and Chet Atkins and Roger Miller. And she made history by becoming the first woman producer to receive a gold record. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. Sylvia Moy was the first producer at the first woman producer at Motown. She was instrumental in Stevie Wonder's career and produced records for him for years. She worked with Michael Jackson and Marvin Gaye and a bunch of others. Sylvia Massey uh, also started as an engineer working with Prince and Rick Rubin. She produced Tool, Chili Peppers, Seven Dust, Power Man 5000. And, you know, Somebody that I think doesn't always get thought of is Linda Perry, oh, yes. because you think of her oh, as a yeah. member of Four Non Blondes and you think of her as a songwriter. But she went into a producer career. She produced enormous hits by Christina Aguilera, Gwen yeah. Stefani, Britney Spears, Alicia Keys, Adele. So I think that, you know, I think we should just do a show about women producers. That would be sick. I'd love it. I think we should. I think that's going to be on the schedule for next year. Cool. Go girls. Go girls. Is Linda Perry also, I know she wrote with Lisa Murray Presley, but I don't know if she produced that. Out. No, I believe that might, well, she might've second. I don't album. know. I have to see that, if, who produced now what, but anyway. Yeah. All right. So I think that's a, that's a pretty nice discussion. I really enjoyed that. And there's yeah. so much more we could talk about. Oh. So we might have to do a part two and then a part three just for the ladies. Yeah. So, We are going to take a quick break. We're going to be back in 30 seconds to do our picks of the week. So don't go anywhere because we got a lot of great stuff to talk about. For over six years, the 42 cast has worked to provide panels discussing topics from every corner of the Geekosphere. Continue with us as we count down to episode 200 and try something a little different. Celebrity guest contributions. Yes, Emma Dumont from The Gifted is partnering with us to talk about science, movies, and so much more. You can only find this great content on The 42 Cast. It's your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. All right, we are back. Who wants to lead us off on our picks of the week? I've got a lot, so (laughs) y'all go first. I don't have a lot. I mean, much like the last two weeks, all I've been listening to is Kill Switch Engage. Nice. So, next person. <laughs> all right, I have one. So, because <laughs> I haven't been listening to much either, but Bra- Rob sent me the new Bananarama single called Feel the Love. And I loved it. I have to say, it was just so, I loved the message. I thought, I, you know, it's a little different from hearing Bananarama now to remembering them from the, you know, 80s, 90s, whatever. It was, it's, it's more dancey and kind of produced and whatever. But I, I absolutely loved it. And the um, chorus is just r- very, very repetitive and very catchy. And I was singing it the whole day. 
and I felt the love. So go feel the love. (laughs) (laughs) It worked. (laughs) It did. All right, Rob, what you got? Um, as soon as I can find it, go ahead. All right, fine. I I will go ahead. All right. So I've got four new releases that I have been obsessed over. Um, the first one is actually from a week ago and I just forgot to mention it on last week's show. And that is the new Rolling Stones album, Hackney Diamond. It is so good. It sounds like classic Rolling Stones and a lot of people compare it to some girls. And to me, a lot of it kind of sounds like Tattoo You. So that late 70s, early 80s sound is really what this is harkening back to. The first single, Angry, was fantastic. Bite My Head Off, which has uh, Paul McCartney on bass, uh, is, is a great song. My favorite one, though, I think, and it's very different from the rest of it, is Sweet Sounds of Heaven, which has Lady Gaga wailing her amazing pipes on that song. Holy cow, is that great. And they performed that live. They did a little showcase um, at a small place um, just a week or so ago and uh, debuting some of the new songs. And she was there and, and sang it with them. And it was phenomenal. So the next one is Taylor Swift. Her re-record of 1989, one of of my favorite albums by her. And as all these re-records come out, each one of them has a series of vault tracks that are songs that were written and and sometimes recorded at the time, but did not make the cut for the album. And they just included on here to give, you know, long-time fans another reason to buy the album again. And there's some really good new songs on there. Now That We Don't Talk and Suburban Legends is my two favorites. And... There's a song called Say Don't Go that was co-written by Diane Warren. And it blows my mind that she sat on a Diane Warren song for 10 years without releasing it. Like, who does that? (laughs) I mean, that's that's like that's like cash money, you know, put Diane Warren's name on something and it's going to sell truckloads. Yeah. Not that Taylor Swift needs that, but, you know. And Alan, it's interesting you mentioned that because from what I've been reading, and I haven't had time to check out the new version of 1989 yet, but a lot of the reviews are saying by the time she released the original version, her voice had really kind of got to where it is now. Yeah. So in terms of the actual re-recorded tracks, they actually sound more or less the same as they did on the original album. At least that's what the reviews I've read are saying. So the value in the re-release is really in those vault tracks. Yes. And here there's a, a Diane Warwick track on there is just mind-blowing. Right, absolutely. Prince put out the new expanded edition of Diamonds and Pearls, one of my absolute favorite, especially for a late period Prince, one of my favorite Prince records. And it has got like 300 additional tracks on it. So I'm still working my way through that. <laughs> and I might save that one for next week. And, and when I've had more time to listen to it, because there's so much to digest from that, like tons and tons of unreleased tracks. And I'm not as interested in like the, the single edits and the remixes and shit like that. I don't care about that. But music that I've never heard before, that's where I'm, you know, and there's a lot of it. So I will report back on that next week. But the last one that I want to talk about, which all of these came out just, we're recording this on Sunday, 1029. And these all just came out two days ago on Friday. And the last one is Dance Macabre by Duran Duran. Holy shit, this record is good. Oh my God. It's a a mix of new songs, re-record, like very different versions of two of their previous songs, and then some covers. And it's basically a Halloween album. And it's, it's so interesting. And I think there's so many great songs like she, they, they redo the talking heads psycho killer, which is an interesting choice. They do a a Susie and the Banshee song. And I think some of the covers aren't as successful, but you have to think of them as new Duran Duran songs. Like if you think of it as a cover of Susie, you're just going to compare it to Susie and it doesn't compare. Now, the one cover that I think is really, really great. And that is Bury a Friend by Billie Eilish. They really completely reworked this song and it is amazing. But I think the highlight of the album to me is the new versions and and the new material is really strong. I, I dig it a lot. But I think the highlight is the reworking of two previous songs. The first one, the the 
the first song on the album is Nightboat from the first album. And they do such a neat new version of it. It's slowed down a little bit. It's given a much darker edge and it just sounds phenomenal. And I really, I think I might even like it more than the original. And the other one is Secret October from uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger. And it is also very different. It's uh, the tempo has changed. They add a little bit of orchestra to it. And it sounds like it's from the soundtrack of Nightmare Before Christmas. It is fascinating. So I highly recommend. And, you know, it takes a lot for me to pull attention away from a new Prince record. But this Duran Duran album did that. So that's how much I love it. All right, Rob, it's your turn. Everything old is new again. Let me just say that. Um, because this is one of those, the sky, the, the sky has fallen, hell is frozen over moments, but we have a brand new record from the Libertines. Um, oh, really? Yeah. It's called run, run, run. <laughs> and, uh, an album is coming in a month. And the great oh, thing nice. about it is, you know who they told it was coming out? Nobody. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's fantastic. So I'm very excited about that. It's another week, which of course means that there is a brand new record by the Reds, Pinks, and Purples. Oh my gosh, uh, this of course. It's called Murder, Oral Sex, and Cigarettes. Um, he is going to do a tour of Europe and he's going to play Minneapolis just because he likes Prince and likes Minneapolis. So there's that. And then our friend Tony Fletcher, who we had on the show, who is an author and Yay. Uh, fanzine maker, he has uh, a band now called Dear Boys that he sort of picked up from picked up where he left off and they have a new single out called a world that doesn't rhyme. So we do want to mention that. And then this is, this is a week where I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that things come free because I got the, uh, one of the things that's I'm very excited about is they don't know, which is the obnoxiously huge collection of music from Kirsty McCall. It's eight CDs. It's got 47 unreleased tracks from oh Kirsty McCall. They've remixed everything else. It's pretty much everything Kirsty McCall ever recorded. Oh, wow. And it's, it's just fantastic, but it also makes you very sad. Yeah. Also, there is, this is exhausting, a 14 CD retrospective of Billy Bragg called The Roaring 40. So if you want anything from Billy Bragg, you, you can even get the songs that are the better love songs. Than the, he, he writes better love songs than he writes political songs, but that's just me. But if you're a fan of, uh, of The Bard of Barking, you've got that as well to check out. And then also a book that has utterly fascinated me called High Bias, The Distorted History of the Cassette by Mark oh, Masters. Yeah. It's, that looks uh, really good. It's like, guys, this is how this works. It's 2023. If Alan and I want to make it through the end of 2024, you can't make any more music books. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this has to stop. But this one's really good. It's a history of the cassette. It sort of explains everything with the cassette. And in a week where we saw the release of the uh, Bluetooth cassette player, it's timing. Oh, um, yeah, that's right. It could not be better timed. And it's right. really fascinating just about like how the cassette tape happened, how it got mass produced, how they got the music industry behind it, all that stuff in there. Wow. That's so that's, that's it for me. All right. We are going to be back next week and we have a fantastic topic next week. So I hope you stick around next week and join us for that. Until then, Stephanie Seymour, where can people find more about you? All righty. Well, you can find me on Bandcamp under my name. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music, on Instagram at there underscore are underscore birds. And I also have a website, there are birds. And in all the streaming platforms like Spotify and stuff like that. <laughs> Sweet. Yes. Robert. So you can find me on Louder Than War on Mondays. Now we are on Eastern time um, in the UK. So this has reminded me to tell people to change the times, but it is still six to eight if you are on Greenwich Mean Time. But if you're on um, Eastern time, it's two to four Eastern, one to three Central. Um, but you can just make it easier and listen to it on the archive stream. Mm-hmm. Um through Louder Than War on, on their Mixcloud stream. There's 33 editions of it right now. Um, soon to go on Spotify, but for now, you can get it on, on Mixcloud. And then also, um, for now, uh, I host Juxtaposition on KDHX. Hold on. And um, <laughs> oh, you, you can listen to that Wednesday nights from 7 to 9 Central. Um, it is really important, uh, boys and girls, that you listen to curated radio these days. 
Um, it's a dying art form and it's incredible. And people that do it are passionate about it and well-researched. Not all of them can do podcasts, so they do radio shows. So support <laughs> your local college or independent radio, radio station. Uh, having said that, it's 7 to 9. is archived on kdhx.org. You can listen to it whenever you want. So if Wednesday you're out and about, maybe your house is just besieged with bats. You can just <laughs> run outside and listen to it there on the archive Because it's Halloween. Screen. Yeah. Whatever you need to do, right? Um, you got to feed the turtles. You still got time. Whatever you got to do, you can listen to it on the archive stream at kdhx.org. And then uh, I also help out on the Weekend Justice um, podcast for NeedCoffee.com. All right, Anthony, bring us home. Uh, yep, you can also find me on Watches in the Fourth Dimension, a Doctor Who podcast where we are working our way through the entirety of Doctor Who from 1963 until now. We are currently in 1976, so we're starting to creep forward. And you can find us on wherever you like to get your podcasts, really, Spotify, uh, Apple, Amazon, Google, Castbox, iHeartRadio, etc., 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 etc. If anyone wants to follow the podcast on social media, it's at at Watches Four D. Or if you want to follow me personally on Instagram, you can find me at at Englishman in ATL. Sweet. All right. So I've got a couple of other podcasts because, of course, I do, and one of them is Earth Station Trek a Star Trek podcast, and the and another one is Doctor Who A to Z, all about Doctor Who. All right. Be with us next week. See you then. Everybody take care. Have a great week. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.